You know, one of God's purposes for the church is that we relate like family. We relate like family and we treat one another like family because we are family. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul instructs young Timothy, a young pastor at the church at Ephesus, on how he is to relate with the people in his congregation. Paul tells him in 1 Timothy 5, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. This is familial language that we see uh, woven throughout the New Testament. We see it in Ephesians 2.19, that we are members of the same household of God. That Romans 12.10, we show love with brotherly affection. We are family. The church is a gathering of spiritual mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, where we encourage one another. We instruct one another. We give wisdom to one another. And we set culture of our church by how we relate with one another. You already had a chance to hear from Pastor Rick Swing, executive pastor here at Westwood, who is like a spiritual father to me. And a lot of things I've learned about life and, and fatherhood and parenting and, and ministry, I've learned, learned from him. One of the things he taught me years and years ago, that something he tried to do in his family was to, to have a priority, a, a value of laughter. Something his family regularly seeks to do together. And by laughing together, it creates joy and unity. And it brings blessing where people want to be together. What's he doing there? He's creating culture. Within his family, he's wanting to make, a, make, a, a, make it a place of gathering where they want to be together. You see, culture is very important in marriages and families, businesses and churches. You see, when an athlete shows up early to practice and works hard in training and teammates hold each other accountable, that's a healthy culture. In business, when leaders are ethical and hardworking, smart, selfless, and they create a fun environment, that's a healthy culture. When a school has teachers who have resources and parental support, and an administration that affirms and celebrates them, and students that are compliant and teachable. That's a healthy culture. When a husband and wife, they love one another, they enjoy one another, when they want to spend time with one another, that's a healthy culture. Well, as we look at the church at Antioch, in Acts chapter 11, we see a healthy, gospel-centered culture that is impacting many, many people for the sake of the gospel. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 11. We're studying the book of Acts together as a faith family. And we saw last week at the church at Antioch how it was established. That believers from Jerusalem fled for their lives during the persecution and execution of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. They fled to various parts of the world, but as they go, they're preaching the gospel, they're preaching the word. And we see that some ended up in Antioch, which is modern in modern day Turkey. And that's where we're going to pick up in Acts 11. 
Now, we studied this text, this exact same passage last week, looking at three characteristics of what a healthy, gospel-centered culture looks like. And today, we're going to look at three other of those characteristics. So let's reread the text together in Acts chapter 11, beginning with verse 19. And the scripture says this. Now, those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord." News about them reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to travel as far as Antioch. When he arrived and saw the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged all of them to remain true to the Lord with devoted hearts. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. Then he went to Tarsus to search for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught large numbers. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. In those days, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and predicted by the Spirit that there would be a severe famine throughout the Roman world. This took place during the reign of Claudius. Each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea. They did this, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. News about what God is doing in the church at Antioch has spread all the way to the apostles in Jerusalem. The apostles send Barnabas out to go and check out what's happening in this church. Barnabas makes the 450-mile trip north to investigate what he sees at the church at Antioch. When he arrives... He's encouraged. He is blown away by by what God is doing in the church. He finds a healthy, gospel-centered culture. He sees a church that is growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, where they're reaching people for the glory of Jesus. The question that we asked last week, and we're going to continue to ask and answer this week, is this. What are the marks of a healthy gospel culture in a local church? And how can Westwood continue to cultivate that here within our church? I want you to notice in the text these six ways, these six marks of a healthy, gospel-centered culture. The first is a culture of personal evangelism. We saw last week in verses 19 through 21, believers were speaking the word and proclaiming the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The second thing we saw was a culture of joy-filled encouragement. As Barnabas the son of encouragement, that's what his name means. As he shows up, he encourages the church to be faithful to Jesus, to be fully devoted to him. You see, a mark of a healthy gospel-centered church is that people love one another. We encourage one another. We speak words of life and affirmation to one another. And we encourage one one another all the more as we see the day approaching. The third mark was a culture of spirit-filled leadership. We looked at Barnabas and his character as a leader within the church. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. We saw where healthy churches are led by healthy leaders. We looked at 1 Timothy 3 and the marks of a pastor. 
in which Paul emphasizes character over charisma. But we see that not only is it church leaders who are to set the pace, but it's also the entire church, that all of us are called to live godly lives, that honor Christ, that we walk, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, that we are men and women of integrity and righteousness as we seek to honor Christ with our words, our actions, and with our lives. This morning, I want you to see three more marks, three characteristics of a healthy, gospel-centered culture within a local church. So with Antioch as our model, I want to see what these three more marks are that we see here in the text. What this looks like for us as a church, what this looks like for you as a believer. The fourth is this. It's a culture of faithful teaching. Seeing the grace of Jesus on the church at Antioch, lots of new believers are being added. And when you get a church full of new believers, there's a lot of times a lot of zeal, but not a lot of knowledge. They, this church needs maturity. They need disciple making. They need someone who will teach them the word. So Barnabas makes the 150 mile journey to Tarsus to look for Saul. Now, last time we encountered Saul, he was running for his life. He had faced death threats in Tarsus and in Jerusalem. But now, I'm sorry, not Tarsus, but in Damascus. There it is, Bruce. He was facing death threats in Damascus and Jerusalem. He then goes back to his hometown in Tarsus. Barnabas finds him. They probably celebrate when they see one another. They, they embrace one another. They talk about what God is doing. And Barnabas tells Saul, here's all the things that are happening in Antioch. Why don't you go with me and let's go and teach them the word? And Paul's like, let's go. And so the two of them come back to Antioch and they spend an entire year teaching them the word. They're establishing the church upon the truth of scripture. They're teaching them the word of God. They're wanting this church to grow and mature as faithful followers of Jesus. What I love about what's happening in the church is that the evangelism within the church, verses 19 through 20, is being matched with discipleship, verse 26. You see, evangelism and discipleship are not opposites within the church. They're two sides of the same coin. Healthy churches are effective and intentional at sharing the gospel and teaching the gospel. You see, teaching scripture is one of the primary tasks of the church. That's what Jesus told us to do in the Great Commission, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. Disciple making means teaching others who will then go and teach others, who will then go and teach others, who will then go and teach others. It's disciples making disciples who make disciples. But you see, teaching was a key component of Jesus's earthly ministry. Jesus taught thousands. We see that in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus taught small groups. We see him with his 12 disciples. Jesus taught triads, Peter, James, and John. We also see Jesus teaching one by one. He did it with Nicodemus in John 3. Jesus taught in the synagogues and in the temple. Jesus taught in boats, hillsides, seasides, and roadsides. Jesus taught truth with authority, clarity, and accuracy. His teaching would shock people. He would strengthen the weak. He would anger the self-righteous. 
You see, teaching is one of the primary tasks of the church, that we are a people who are to regularly gather to learn the word of God from faithful teachers. You see, faithful Bible teaching requires the word of God taking center stage in the life and rhythm of the local church. Whether it's in a large group gathering like this, or in a small group gathering, or in a D group that meets at Chick-fil-A, or in a flourish group as women gather around the word together, or it's in a counseling session, or in hallway conversations. We teach each other the word of God. We bring the word of God to bear upon one another's lives. That faithful teaching brings the word of God to bear upon the people. And it's the word that nourishes the church, develops the church, and preserves the church to be faithful to the gospel. You see, this is one of the reasons that I believe in expositional preaching. Expositional preaching means to expose the word of God. That's what I I, I seek to do, is I want to bring the word of God to bear upon your life. That there's a sense in which expositional preaching involves interpretation, explanation, and application. We interpret the text, I explain the context, and then I apply it to the audience. That's expositional preaching. I've told you guys that I used to have a job at Outback Steakhouse. When I was going through college at UK, I got a job there to kind of make ends meet. And so one of my responsibilities was to make the blooming onion. And so the process of the bloomin' of onion was was to put it in this machine, you'd bring in the crank down and it would like flower open, You would then put it in a bucket full of seasonings and you would roll it around in the seasoning. You'd sprinkle the seasonings in all the crevices. You'd place the blooming onion into the buttermilk. You'd pick it back up. You'd put it in the seasonings and you roll it around and sprinkle it on it because you want the seasonings to get in all the crevices. And then you'd put it in the fryer. That's kind of how I preach. I want to take you, my blooming onions... I want to roll you around in scripture. I want the word of God to get into all the crevices of your heart and your mind. That the word of God is taking root upon your life. That as you hear the word of God being brought to bear. Now what you do with it, I can't control. I wish I could. I can't. Jesus tells the parable of the soils. There's there's good soil. There's hard soil. There's some soil that the seed of the word of God is taken away. Oh, I pray that you would be a congregation. We would be a people, have soft, fertile soils, hearts, that when the word of God is planted like seed, it bears much fruit, that we just roll ourselves around the scriptures. Let the word of God just permeate all of who we are. Here's this uh, story that Jesus tells about how the farmer, he goes out and he plants and then he goes to sleep. And while he sleeps, his crop grows. And how it grows, the farmer does not know. What I believe Jesus is driving home is that when we plant the word of God in our hearts, we go to sleep. And the word is doing a work even while we sleep. That the spirit is taking the word of God and the people of God and transforming them to the glory of God. That the spirit is taking his word that he wrote And he's using it to change us and make us more like Christ, to change the way that you think, to change the way that you feel, to change the way that you live. That it's the word of God that changes people. And as your pastor, I want you to know the word of God, to love the word of God, that we would be a people of the book, 
That the book transforms what we think and the way that we live. We, want be, we are a church that feeds on a healthy diet of God's word. And when we do, we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. You see, the pastor's job is to feed the sheep the word of God. Paul says it like this to young Timothy. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You can say that day is already here. You need someone who will tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. That you need the pure milk of the word of God. That the scripture is what is brought to bear upon your heart in life. Paul says, preach the word. Don't preach politics. Don't preach man's opinion. Don't preach health and wealth. Don't preach to make people feel good. Preach the word. And God takes his word and he uses it powerfully in the hearts and lives of his people. You see, the New Testament also gives stern warnings against false teaching. Now, why is that a big deal? It's because if someone teaches you something that is not true and you believe it, it has dangerous implications for your soul. Have you ever had somebody lie about you? How'd that make you feel? I've been in that situation where someone said something about me that wasn't true and the anger I felt. Those are good and right responses. False teaching is lying about God. It's saying things about him that are not true. And the danger that you and I face living in a world saturated with lies where there are religions and cults and worldly philosophies that say things about God that are not true, is that if anyone believes those things, it leads to eternal destruction. God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God desires to be in a relationship with all people. And he calls all people to turn from their sin and to trust in his son, that God has made a way through the Lord Jesus Christ who came and lived that perfect life that you and I couldn't live. And he died the death that we deserved at the cross. That he took your place. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of all of your sins. And he was buried in a tomb, but he didn't stay dead. He got back up on the third day. That Jesus defeated death and so too will all who trust in him. At this precious gospel changes everything about us. And this gospel points you and I away from us and it points us to Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life that no one comes to the Father but through him. 
that we are a people who are in desperate need of truth. And a mark of a healthy gospel culture is that there is faithful Bible teaching, that the word of God is brought to bear upon God's people. So what do we do? How do we respond to false teaching? Well, it's interesting. Paul addresses that in Romans 16, 17. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. I I say we follow the lead of the early church. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We're a people of the book that you and I need the unchanging, stable, perfect, inerrant, true, and trustworthy word of God. That your Bible is the lifeline for knowing and following Jesus in a world that hates him. That the word is what we need to fight against an enemy who is tempting you to walk away from Jesus. And you and I need the word of God. And here's what I've also found. One of the ways that you can protect your church from wolves is by feeding the people sheep food. If you bring the word of God, those who have the spirit, those who know Christ, they want the word of God. They don't want to be entertained. They want the true, pure milk of Scripture that satisfies their souls. They desire more of Christ. And the way that you and I can endure in the faith is through a study of Scripture and knowing God through his word. Paul says it like this in Romans 15, 4, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the Scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. God has given you the scriptures to help you to endure in the faith and to encourage you to remain steadfast that you might have hope in this world. And the scriptures are how you can know the thoughts of God and follow him closely. We'll say it like this. The depth of your love of God is tethered to the depth of your knowledge of God through his word. The more you know him, the more you love him. The more you know the Lord, the more you fall in love with him. The more that you get to know his character, his beauty of his attributes, when you see him for who he is, your worship becomes much more deep and impactful. Because you realize, oh my goodness, this is the God of the universe who knows all things and he does all things well. He makes no mistakes, yet he's working for my good. He loves me from before the foundations of the earth had ever been laid. He knows my name. I put my faith in him. So he puts my name in the last book of life. I belong to him forever. The spirit of God lives within me. And we just keep going and going and going and going and learning and learning and learning. And the more we know, it leads us to worship, to love the God we know so well. That like a precious diamond, we get to hold up and see in different angles of the beauty and the different contrasts and colors. So as we look through the scriptures, we look at God and his beauty and the different angles and the way he works all throughout the world. 
Faithful Bible teaching is a mark of a healthy church. And you and I need the scriptures so that we might continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Hear me on this. If your knowledge of God through his word is shallow, your love is shallow. But if your knowledge of God through his word is deep, your love is deep. Saul and Barnabas took an entire year to teach the church at Antioch the scriptures so that they might be mature in the faith and in turn be able to teach others also. A healthy gospel-centered culture within a church has a culture of faithful teaching. Fifthly, we see in the text, there is a culture of Christ-centered identity. Luke tells us, verse 26, the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. Now, up until this point, believers, they were called disciples or followers of the way. But in Antioch, the believers were being mocked. They were being belittled for following Jesus. They were called Christians, you little Christs. It was a term of derision and mockery. Why did the world call them this? Well, it's because their life was so unique and distinct from the rest of the world. The Christians lived differently than the pagan world around them. The church of Antioch was so different by the way that they viewed the world and the way they lived their lives. That the church, they had a different sexual ethic. They had a different worldview. They cared for the poor. They rescued babies from trash dumps. They loved one another deeply, and their lives were drastically different than everyone else around them. And so the world started calling them Christians as a way to mock them, and they started thinking, you know what, we kind of like the sound of that. Yeah, we're trying to become just like him. My question to you is, does your life look different than the rest of the world around you? When people see your life, Do they see someone who's just different than the rest of the world? Does the way that you speak, the attitude of your heart, the way that you work, the way that you coach, the way that you spend your money, the priorities of your life, when people look at you, do they see someone who's different than the rest of the world? How's your language? When you speak, do you impart grace to the hearers or does something else come out? Do people look at you and wonder, man, what's different about you? The believers in Antioch were so different that they just got a, a label because people are like, man, you're so much a little Christ meant as a way to mock them and make fun of them. They thought, no, we want to be different than all of y'all. You see, the word Christian is used two other times in the New Testament. One of those times is in Acts 26, 68, where Paul is sharing the gospel with King Agrippa and inviting him to believe. And King Agrippa said to Paul, are you going to persuade me to become a Christian so easily? You see, the king was trying to distance himself from bearing such a name. That would have been a cultural embarrassment. That would have been a political liability. And you, you're trying to make me a Christian? This is going to cost me my career. This could cost me my influence. This could cost me my popularity and potentially even my own life. My question is, are you ashamed of being a follower of Jesus? That when people see your life and they call you a Christian, 
Are you embarrassed by that? May I say to you, Jesus is not ashamed of you. Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother and his sister. In fact, Jesus is so not ashamed of you, his death was public. Publicly, he was shamed. Publicly, he was embarrassed. Publicly, he wanted the world to know how much he loves you. And so if Jesus died publicly on our behalf, how much more should we be willing to publicly declare our faith and hope in him? That we're unashamed to know Jesus. That we're unashamed of the gospel. Because we're a people who have been changed by Jesus. And may I say to you, a mark that you belong to Jesus is that you publicly identify with him even if it costs you. Last week, Pastor Corey and I got to have coffee at Chick-fil-A with uh, two brothers who are ministering the gospel in Romania. These are Romanian guys who have started a school in a city that is very dark and very lost, but they're reaching hundreds of kids and teenagers with the gospel through this school in partnership with the local church. Now, there's a, a national religion of Romania, and people identify as Orthodox. It doesn't mean that you follow Jesus. It's just that you belong to the church. You don't really believe the stuff, and it doesn't really change their life, but hey, I'm Orthodox. But for those of you who are serious, passionate followers of Jesus, the culture started making fun of them, and they gave them a nickname to mock and make fun of them. The nickname that Romanian believers are called Repenters. That's a name I would take. You guys repent of your sin and you run to Jesus. You bunch of repenters. What's meant as a way to mock and belittle them is actually an affirmation of the validity of the gospel in their life. That we are a people who are marked by repentance. You and I aren't perfect yet. We haven't achieved sinlessness yet. We're repenting that daily we're realizing, oh my goodness, I blew it again. But thank you, Jesus, for your grace and you're sustaining me and you're keeping me. And so I'm turning from this sin and I'm running to you. And he loves to lavish his grace and forgiveness upon broken people like us who know we don't deserve it. But the difference between a believer and an unbeliever is an unbeliever doesn't want to repent. Believers, we want to repent because we realize, ah, oh, I blew it, but Jesus, thank you, I'm running to you for grace. It's amazing to me that that is a mark that is given to them to mock them, to make fun of them. Listen to what Peter says. In 1 Peter 4, 16, Peter says, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. That as a follower of Jesus, you bear the name of Jesus. He identifies with you first. So now out of the overflow of his identification with us, we identify with him. In Kenya, Christy and I have spent a lot of time over there investing in relationships. And it's been a long time since we've been back. I'd love to get back there soon. But while we were over there, there's a cultural distinction between being a Christian and being born again. Christian is a way to identify with an idea because it runs in your family. Born again means your life has really been changed by Jesus. 
I was sharing the gospel with this guy one time when we were there, uh, mid-20s, mid great conversation, beautiful smile. And I said, hey, man, are you, are you a Christian? And he's, yes, yes, I'm a Christian. I said, well, man, why are you a Christian? My mother's a Christian. My father's a Christian. My whole family's a Christian. I said, are you born again? The smile disappeared. No. I said, man, do you want to be? He said, I don't know. I said, and I shared the gospel. Like, man, you can be born again if you will turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus, what he's done for you. I didn't get to lead him to Christ. He wasn't quite ready yet. I hope he has since put his faith in Jesus. But over there, there's a difference between being a Christian and being born again. The way that I articulate it, I'm not sure if you all have picked it up over the last several years, but oftentimes I don't refer to you as Christians. I refer to you and me as Christ followers. It's a distinction because culturally, there's a lot of people that you and I live alongside and live in ball teams and go to, go to the store and say, hey, I'm a Christian, yeah, but there's no mark of Christ in their life. There's no Holy Spirit. It's just a cultural identification. For us who belong to Jesus, we're, fought, we're Christ followers. Now, are we Christians? Yes, but there's more to it than that. Jesus has changed us. But the fact remains, whether you bear the name Christian or Christ follower or repenter or born again, the mark of a healthy gospel-centered culture within a church is that we are identifying with Jesus. Our allegiance and our devotion is to Christ and Christ alone. Sixth and finally, we see here in the text a cultural mark of financial generosity. Agabus, a prophet nearly church, came to Antioch and predicted that there would be a severe famine in the Roman Empire. The church responds with financial generosity. I love this. Look at verse 29. It says, each of the disciples. I, I love that. Everyone's involved in this, right? It, it's not that there's a few people who are bearing the financial burden for the church, everybody's involved, everybody gave, everybody invested, everybody wanted to store up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. These are people from the richest to the poorest, all of the believers in Antioch, determined to send relief to the brothers and sisters who lived in Judea through Saul and Barnabas. This was a corporate effort of all believers working together, sacrificing together, giving generously together. Now, not everyone gave the same amount, but everyone gave. Everyone gave according to their financial capacity to make sure the mission of the gospel continued to move forward. And may that continue to be a part of the culture of who we are as a church at Westwood, that it's not a few people who bear the financial burden, but all of us get to get in on the joy and privilege of giving, of financially investing in the gospel moving forward here and all over the world. We get to be a part of that. Maybe you're a new believer. And this idea is, of, of giving is new to you. Man, what better way than to begin today, than to begin the process of discipleship through your giving, that you begin to grow in your faith by giving back to the Lord. Maybe you're a seasoned veteran, a believer who's been following Jesus for a long time, and God may be stirring your heart to be more generous in your giving. 
It's amazing to me, person after person after person who I've talked to in our church, who've told me story after story after story, in which they have said, you know what? My budget doesn't make sense. I step out in faith and all of a sudden God just provides for this new sacrifice I've just made. And and I've seen it in my life, Christy and I, we've seen it in our marriage where we just step out and say, God, we're going to trust you here. And and we make a sacrifice and then God just comes in faithful like he does every time. Maybe for you, you're saying, Lord, I want to grow in my faith. I need you to give me grace. Lord, I want to trust you with my finances. And so maybe we're going to follow the model of the church at Antioch where everybody gets in on it. It's not a select few. Everybody wants to be a part of seeing the gospel move forward, of caring for the sin relief area down in Judea. And so everybody gives just according to their capacity. Not everybody gave the same amount. Not everybody could, could, could give all, millions and millions of dollars. That's not what happened here. But everybody sacrificed and everybody gave. You see, giving generously flows from a heart that has experienced God's generosity in the gospel. That God is not cheap. He gave his best, his one and only son. God is not a cheap God, but a generous God. He loves to give an avalanche of grace to his people. Ephesians 1, Paul says he lavished the riches of his grace upon us. God doesn't give you a little bit of grace. He empties the bank of grace that he loves to lavish upon you. So in light of God's generosity towards you, of wiping away all of your sin, washing you clean, forgiving you through the precious blood of Christ, in light of all that God's done for you in the gospel, the overflow of joy is I get to be a part of this. I get to give. I get to invest in the gospel going forth. That's what's happening here in Antioch. What we see is what God's done for us in Jesus. We get to go and do the same. So Kenneth, what are you calling us to? That's what I'm calling our entire church to. It's your impact point. Be a faithful Christ follower who cultivates a healthy gospel-centered culture with Westwood. It's interesting to me that in Antioch, it becomes a launching pad for sending missionaries out all over the world. We see it in Acts 13, Acts 14, Acts 15, Acts 18. There's something about this church where God's hand, Acts 11 tells us, is upon the people. Y'all, I want God's hand on our church. I want God's favor and blessing upon us as we seek to impact our world for Jesus. And it takes all of us as individual believers saying, Lord, here's my heart, here's my life. I want to be a part of creating a healthy gospel-centered culture with our church. And as each of us do it individually, as, as families, as a church, God is going to get great glory. The kingdom of darkness is going to lose as we continue to advance the mission of the gospel of light through the gospel. That we get to be a dangerous church, one that moves the needle in reaching people with the gospel as we cultivate a healthy gospel-centered culture right here.